Anyway, shall I'm we? Recording. It's show two. Congratulations, Dan Rayfield, on your new show. What's Impact Boxing? The Impact Network, uh, which actually had signed uh, deals to do some live boxing that began this past February and had made an announcement to do probably another, I think it was another nine or 10 shows for the remainder of the year, which obviously several of them have been postponed because of what's happening with the coronavirus. But part of that was they wanted to do an interview show uh, with, with boxing celebrities and boxing champions and boxing contenders and that sort of stuff. And uh, I signed a contract two days ago to be the host of the show. And we'll start taping uh, probably later this week and uh, see how it goes. We'll have a few shows that are, that are set. And uh, our first guest uh, for when the first show airs, which I believe is May 8th on the Impact Network, will be uh, none other than the Mayweather Promotions CEO, Leonard Ellerbee. Nice. Brilliant. Well, Leonard's very interesting. Listen, if you need an overseas contributor, you know where I am. Absolutely. But, but, but hey, eight shows, 50 grand a show. You've got your, your ESPN contract sorted. Well you're done. Making a lot, you're making a lot more than they're paying me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to, talk to talk to the boxing folks and, uh, and basically see how they're doing during this lockdown situation, see what their plans are. And, uh, you know, it's also it's geared, I think, more towards a general mainstream audience so we can maybe delve a little bit into their backgrounds and, you know, not so much the minutia of, of their next fight, so, you know, so to speak. Yeah. We'll have fun with it, for sure. Absolutely. Like we will with these every, every few days. So, um, you, uh, you will have seen, uh, as, as I'm going to host these things, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw the questions out. You will have seen that Dillian White... Noisy, noisy guy that he is all the time, keeping himself very busy on social media during the lockdown, doing a good job of it, frankly, keeping himself relevant. Wants to fight, clearly. Um, would have been fighting in the next couple of weeks against uh, Alexander Povetkin uh, anyway here in the UK. Would have been a big event, Dan. Um, kind of saying that if Deontay Wilder's, Wilder's injured and the Joshua, Anthony Joshua fight with Fury isn't pushed forward, he really ought to get the fight with the WBC champion Tyson Fury. I kind of see where he's coming from, do you? Absolutely. Uh, you know, again, there's a lot of ifs in that scenario, but if Deontay Wilder, who, who divulged uh, last week that he had had surgery on a biceps injury following the rematch with Tyson Fury, uh, if for whatever reason he's unable to go uh, whenever they're able to try to reset that third fight, uh, and, and Fury is in need of another opponent, he absolutely should fight a Dillian White. Dillian White is the WBC's interim champion for what that's worth, which is what it makes him as the mandatory challenger. Yeah. It's a pretty significant fight. It's a very interesting fight. It's a good fight. Certainly a big fight for the UK. Uh, Dillian White has waited a long time to get a shot at the real belt. Um, he's just as worthy as any contender out there. And I think if you ask boxing fans and you said, you know, rank the top heavyweights, most people in whatever order they would select, you, they would probably put uh, Tyson Fury, uh, Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder, and you know as their top three in whatever order they pick. I think by and large, most people would put uh, Dillian White there as number four, and uh, so he absolutely deserves the opportunity. And I would, I would obviously be down for that fight for sure. You know, you look at it as well. He had a good win over Joseph Parker in a thriller last year. I mean, I was ringside doing radio commentary on it actually for for Talk Sport and writing for the Telegraph, and it was. It was a real thriller of a fight. I'm sure it looked good on TV from the U.S. Oh, a tremendous fight. I mean, Dillian White is, is often in excellent fights. Um, you know, and I know he's supposed to have, uh, have the uh, interim title defense against Povetkin uh, in July. You know, I hope they can have it, but, you know, I remain a little skeptical about how that gets done um, given what's happening. But uh, hopefully by the time we get to that point in the summer that they'll be able to start having these fights again. 
Uh, incidentally, I spoke to Robert Smith, uh, as I do every couple of weeks, really. Robert Smith, the General Secretary of the British Boxing Board of Control today. And they are looking potentially at boxing behind closed doors mid-June to early July, which is sensible. But maybe not even championship fights, you know? Just five or six fights in one venue. Warren and Hearn, probably the promoters. Sky and BT Sport probably doing it, Dan. No ring card girls. See, we have a referee judging uh, if it's 10-round right. fights. Um, those so that's, three, that's three less back. people that need to be there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Just to ease it back. So, but but still, that's still, you know, um, party to regulations by government, whether it's doable, all the medical people there. What happens if someone gets cut? Do you know what I mean? Is that the end of the bout? You know, I think it is at the moment, you know? Well, I don't know why it would be the end of the bout. I mean, they can still allow their cornermen to go back and do their work on it. Uh, what I would be concerned about is more than a cut is that if somebody were to suffer the kind of injury that would require them to be taken to a hospital. Oh, that's the pickup, yeah. The medical professionals who are going to be dealing, obviously, with people who are ill with this disease. The other thing that I'm still not clear about in terms of the timing is, let's say that the British board is, is good to go and they can, they, they theoretically could be involved in regulating fights in that time frame, perhaps the same in the United States, is you have to, the, the fighters and their teams and the promoters have to know exactly when, because even if boxers are staying in condition uh, as best as they can during their quarantines, lockdowns, whatever, they still need to have at least a few weeks. I mean, to, to actually go to the real gym with their trainers, with sparring partners and do an actual weeks of training. You got to get in. Well, all of that. And, and listen, what, what Warren and Hearn and Robert Smith are probably looking at at the moment, DAZN, um, Fox, ESPN, um, Al Heyman okay. and his crew, uh, Bob Arum and Oscar De La Hoya, who are the major people, I would say, in America, roughly. Lou DiBella, you can include a few others. Um, that's exactly what they'll be looking to do as well. It wouldn't surprise me to see them bringing back boxing in some form in very early July. Some form. Do you know what I mean? Just make yeah, I mean, the TV, you know? There was this past weekend on Saturday night. Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, exactly. They did sprayed down. They did. They had a club card. It was headlined yeah. by eight rounder, a few six rounders and four rounders. Uh, they had the fans that were that were allowed in, very distant, so it was not a full arena, but they had you know several feet between them. Uh, the referee wore a mask. I mean, it, it seemed a little contrived. I'm not sure that when you're that close that it's that necessarily a good thing. But obviously, we'll see in a couple of weeks as this thing happens to take a few weeks to incubate whether anybody got ill from that situation. Exactly. I mean. But, it, but right now, as of last weekend, Nicaragua rules the boxing world. Um, so um, look, let me move on. <laughs> let me move on to the next question. Talking about behind closed doors. Yes. Josh Taylor in the last couple of days, might have even been today, saying, oh my God, I can't fight behind closed doors. It'd be like glorified sparring. And Terence Crawford, interestingly, came up with something, didn't he? Well, Crawford had the opinion that, you know, while he wouldn't be a fan of fighting behind closed doors, that if he was going to fight behind closed doors, he would want more money, making the point that part of his compensation, besides his guaranteed purse for many of his events, is he gets a piece of the pie in terms of what they sell in terms of the gate revenue. Yeah. Uh, his popular draw at home in Nebraska. Uh, he may have a similar agreement uh, with fights that are not in Nebraska, for example, when he has fought in places like New York City. Uh, so, you know, that seems to be, I understand where he's coming from, but it also seems a little short-sighted because you know, I think some of these fighters are going to have to probably take, and promoters for that matter, and managers, to take less money 
because there is not going to be any gate revenue from these events. And so, you know, where is the money going to come from? I mean, you get to a certain point where, you know, if you're a fighter and you're used to making, you know, a million dollars, you know, are you just going to throw away the opportunity because, you know, they want you to take 750? I just, it's going to be an interesting discussion between boxers and their handlers about redoing whatever economics there are for these fights because there's clearly going to be less money. The TV networks that, that pay much of the freight, it's not like they're about to raise the amount of money that they're going to pay for these events because they're having problems also because there's lack of other sports events that create their revenue. So it's going to be interesting. I understand where Crawford's coming from. I think it's a short-sighted point. Uh, he's entitled to that view. In terms of what Josh Taylor said, you know, I, and I've talked to some other boxers too about fighting behind closed doors that they, they feed off that intensity. I was yeah. talking to Daniel Jacobs for a piece I did a few days ago uh, for BoxingScene.com. And Daniel Jacobs was talking about how whether he's being cheered or booed, he feeds off the intensity of the crowd and he just had a hard time. Uh, not that he's opposed to doing it if necessary, but had a hard time envisioning what it would be like to do that in front of, you know, basically no fans. Hey, look, would Ward-Gatty trilogy fights have been what they were in front of nobody? Actually, maybe they would have been, but um, you don't know with those two. Um, you know, but what, what I'm saying is, and we feel it as well. I, I need to ask you, because I was thinking about this, because we have to cover enough bloody fights off TV where we can't be everywhere in the world. Like, if we're in Vegas on a... On a well, if I'm in Vegas on a Saturday and there's a big fight back in the UK, but I wanted to be there for Canelo and Mayweather, but there was a big fight back in the UK, it's not the same writing 500 words off a TV screen as no. being there in the energy of the place with people screaming all around you. Mike Coppinger trying to elbow you and asking you what's going on all the time, or rather telling you what's going on. <laughs> and you can see it with your own eyes anyway. And he's half wrong half the time anyway. So, you know, it's... <laughs> It's going to be a whole different world. But, it, but, but you're, you're, listen, I've said it many times. I have been at fights where I have not slept for two days afterwards because I've received so much adrenaline from the event. Yeah. You know the feeling. You and I are still up at nine o'clock in the morning writing, doing radio, I, TV after yeah. an event in Vegas. And like, I we don't know you, how. I couldn't tell you the number of events I have covered uh, in places like Las Vegas or New York City or wherever, where I literally haven't gone to sleep after the fight because I've had like an early flight or an early train or whatever. And you're so wired up, you just stay up and, you know, you, get, work, you do radio, it's easy. Yeah. And it's you're writing it's, or you're hanging out or whatever. You're just wired. You're talking about the fight. You can't go to sleep. But it's like one of those, it's like the boxers are saying, um, even now, um, what is it? You know, when we're, when I'm getting into week seven, I think at the moment, week six or week seven, I'm actually craving being at a big event, you know? Yeah, me too. And I, 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 this morning, I spoke to my father, and he said, so what have you, would you have been doing in these six weeks? And I listed. I was back and forth America four times. To, um, I was just about to go and do a Bellator event in San Jose, come back and do London TV. But, and then it was um, Yusuk and Chisora. It was White and... Um, you, uh, White and... Um, and um, Vetkin. Pavetkin, then into into June with Fury, uh, with with Pula. You'd be getting ready for the Canelo fight right now. Oh, the Canelo. Saunders or, you know, that was a big Las Vegas fight, obviously. Yeah. Well, no, I was going to do White and I was going to do White and Pavetkin here rather than right. go for that. But I could have gone for BJ Saunders. The reason was work. I had four days with William Hill where I'm doing kind of TV shows for them every day. But I went through it with my dad and he went, oh my God. And I realized that in the course of, I looked over the days we've been out. 
And I looked over the few weeks ahead and I think over 45 days, I'd have been like eight at home. Yeah. You know? We would have just had a fight that a lot of people were looking forward to, at least the hardcore fans, was an ESPN uh, Plus event with uh, uh, Inouye against Casimiro in the bandwidth. Yes. The next week, we're going to be the Canelo fight. Oh, yeah. Obviously, the, the fights in June that we're going to be coming up with, yeah. Triple G fighting or the, the big fights in Britain that you mentioned with uh, yeah. Pavekin and uh, Chisora, Usyk, uh, you know, Dillian White. I mean, there was a lot of interesting matchups, not to mention, uh, you know, Luke Campbell, Regis, you know, against Fortuna. That was last week. That was yeah, that was supposed to be the 17th. I, I was I mean, going to do, go to New York on the Wednesday and do the UFC build-up, which was um, – Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov right. do their press conference on the Thursday, get on a train to Maryland down near you. Come down, visit me. Uh, visit on the morning, two and a half hours, do the fight, yep. record my show with Adam for Talk Sport on the train we were going to do on the way back. And now we're sitting in our kitchen. On the Saturday night. Then I was going to San Francisco on the Sunday. But you know what? I think it's this rest if you can call it that, because we're still working. Yeah. It's the appreciation. Every day I try, before I go to sleep, say I'm thankful for one big thing in that day. Do you know what I mean? And my one big thing today is you, baby. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, let's All right, what on. else we got? Right. What else we got? I tell you who's been a bit of a star of the, the lockdown is Mike Tyson. He's done quite a lot. Um, people are hanging on his every word. He's such a grown man these days he, he's so he because he he looks outside boxing from within and he looks inside from without and he knows that all he really was was a destructive fighter but he's a much bigger human being now and appreciates what other people do with their success but i think it is fascinating what he's thinking of doing isn't it well he has been well number one he's been awfully charitable and his name has been out there more than maybe usual from the standpoint of his boxing, because at least in terms of like on ESPN, they've shown these blocks of repeat fights. They have shown over the last few weeks, a few times, his fights against uh, Michael Spinks. Yeah. His fight against obviously Buster Douglas, which he lost, but it was a great fight. The fight that he had against Larry Holmes, they've shown some of those fights, so it's gotten a little of uh, attention. Um, uh, but there has been his part of, about trying to raise money, but also he's talked about in recent days about getting back in the gym. He's like 53, getting some op, some kind of fighting shape and conducting exhibitions to raise money uh, to help fight, you know, to help uh, some of the first responders and the people that are down on their luck because of this situation. Um, and to think that here we are all these years after Tyson's career, uh, so, so many controversies that, you know, he's actually like almost a voice of reason and somebody that gives people comfort is sort of amazing to me. And I'm glad because he seems in a good place and, uh, you know, has overcome so much, uh, you know, will freely admit he didn't always do the right thing. He obviously has a checkered past, but you know, people can uh, change their points of view and, uh, and do, do good things uh, beyond when the time was uh, happening when maybe they weren't doing the right thing. So, you know, credit to Tyson for doing that. Absolutely. What do you think about him doing an exhibition bout? It would generate an interest, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't think anybody's going to take it serious as like it's a real serious fight, um, but I can't think of a boxing fan or even sports fans, given how big of a name Mike is, if you knew that he was going to do an exhibition that was going to help raise money and whoever was on the other side of the ring with him was, you know, of a similar uh, age or, or condition, you know, why not? So, last subject today. You were there. I wasn't because I think... I think I was covering... There was a big event in the London Marathon. I'd been seconded by the Telegraph to stay here, and I remember watching it 
on a really, really rough stream. And I'm talking eight years ago, I think it was. Eight, nine years ago. And it was, it was nine, was it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was Carl Froch against Jermaine Taylor. Uh, is that Atlantic City? It was, wasn't it? No, it was at the Foxwoods Resort in Connecticut. Foxwoods, Connecticut, yeah. Um, where it's a great venue. So I remember seeing Amir Khan, um, uh, not Amir Khan, Nassim Ahmed fight there against... He fought there against... Algi Sanchez. Now, interestingly, you mentioned that. It was the same casino, but when, when uh, Naz fought Augie, a fight that I covered, they fought in... You know, they, the, the casino folks would close down their bingo hall, which seated, you know, many... I thousands. was there with you. I was there with you. Right. Now, because the bingo hall generates so much money... Yeah. They built a separate facility. That's from, right. You know, like right on the property, but, you know, a, a, another theater-style thing uh, where they would host other events. So they could leave the bingo hall open and make the money. Right. And then fights like... Uh, Carl against Jermaine Taylor, the first fight between uh, Andre Berto and Victor Ortiz, which is a sensational fight. They, they put it in this new theater. But when Frotch and Taylor had their fight, oh, what a memorable fight that was. Uh, just, you know, mainly because of the comeback from Frotch. So it's the anniversary. So I think that's why we were talking about it. You know, he had come over to the States to defend his super middleweight title. You had Jermaine Taylor, uh, you know, who was coming up to, into the super middleweight division, um, you know, had, had defeated um, – Bernard Hopkins two times. I mean, he had suffered loss, but, uh, you know, was, was thought to be, you know, a live dog in that fight against totally. Frank. Totally. And not only was he a live dog, but he was winning the very handily. And, you know, we all know what a great chin Carl Frotch has. Uh, I think to this day, that may only be the, the only time he, uh, maybe you're correct me if I'm wrong. Jermaine knocked him down in round three in that fight. I think to this day, that was the only time Carl was ever off his feet in a fight. No, it was, he was down in one other fight. Um... It was rare, though, for sure. Oh, no, it was rare. He was only down twice. No, um, um, Groves put him down, didn't he? Okay. So, but, but Taylor knocked him down in round three. Uh, Carl was trailing the entire fight, you know, kind of badly, if you ask me, um, and mounted an unbelievable rally in the, in, the, in the 12th round, knocked Jermaine Taylor down, and then stopped him with, like, what, 12, 14 seconds left in the fight to keep his title. And that, that really helped Carl do two things. It helped him make a name for himself in America because it was such an exciting uh, fight with such a, an explosive kind of ending. And it also set him up. Uh, it made, I think, it, that, was, that was one of the fights, I think, that had the people at Showtime really deciding to now go forward with what they dubbed the, the World Boxing Super Series, or the, the Super Series. Super Series, yeah. Super Series. Super Series. And then Carl, yeah. his next fight was in that, in that tournament where he made it to the finals. You know, he lost to Andre Ward, but it was a, a good performance until he got to that fight. And, uh, but, but the Taylor fight, I think, is what was the, the, the building block to what was a terrific tournament. I remember so often people like yourself and other um, esteemed journalists in America asking me, how is Frotch not a big star in the UK? Because he was a bigger star in America for a while than he eventually became in the UK uh, in, in that final run that he had under Eddie Hearn against Lucien Boutte, where he said he was going to retire if he didn't when he was tremendous that night um, against... Um, Both Groves fights. The, the two Groves fights, uh, the fight, the return fight with Mikkel Kessler, and there, and there was one other, I can't remember the name of the guy now. Um, uh, well, he fought Yusuf Mack was one of the Yusuf fights. Yusuf Mack. There was the last five, Yusuf Mack as well. And they were brilliant performances, the last five of his. You know, he came back against Groves. And it wasn't really till the Butte fight, because the fight before Pascal, then, uh, the fight before um, Jermaine Taylor fought Jean-Pascal here, five million people watched it on TV. On, on network, terrestrial as we call it, TV. Yeah. And then they pulled the plug 
on their boxing shows. So he, he, he had the momentum and then he was gone. That fight with Jermaine Taylor was on, I think, a channel called Premier Sports or something, 15,000 views. Over well, here. Here, here was a main event on Showtime. So, you know, I yeah. don't know the exact numbers, but it was probably doing, you know, near a million viewers. Um, and, uh, you know, but it was, look, Carl Froch, it, for my money, if number one, he should be in the Hall of Fame. He will be someday. He will be. He will be. Um, but his, his, his great run that got him to the point where you can say he is, should be in the Hall of Fame, it probably started with the Pascal fight. Oh, definitely. 12, 12 world title fights in a row. But here's the thing. If you look at Carl's career, he, he probably, for that time period, in, in particularly in that weight, in those weight divisions between 160 and one, uh, or, uh, 160 where he fought. Uh, no, it was no. all 168. Yeah, 168. I was thinking Pascal was the one that had moved up. He was still 168, yeah. 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 For that time frame and that weight division, Carl Froch fought literally everybody you could fight. Everybody. Two fights everybody. with Mikhail Kessler, two fights with George Groves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Carl was the man. You know, you know Carl, Carl and I, we had our little issues here and there, but I have, and now we're good now, but I have massive respect for what he did, what he accomplished, and, and the fact that he was willing to travel. Yeah. You know, the first fight with Mikhail Kessler fought overseas. Uh, in in Kessler's hometown, and he also had the fight here in America against Andre Ward. The fight in America here against um, against Jermaine Taylor. So you know you got to give him all the credit in the world. Listen, he fought in Helsinki. Uh, no, I went to Helsinki. It was minus ten. He fought Arthur Abraham. It was a brilliant performance, and Abraham was still dangerous then. When he fought Kessler the first time. He had to go through a volcanic ash cloud remember with that. his pregnant wife in a small plane to get into the fight because he wanted it to go ahead. Listen, he's a modern British great. For me, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, by the way. Yeah, I mean, you have to see who else is on the ballot. No, he's, he's got to be in. Is there anything no, but an insult? No, no, listen, I'm not saying he doesn't belong in, but when you vote in the Hall of Fame, they give you the list of guys uh, and women. Where, well, the women's are on a separate ballot. Women's ballot is just yeah, but the, then the men's modern ballot, you can only vote for a certain number. I think it's five boxers you can vote for, and they elect three of the top three vote getters. So if you have five people, now take, for example, the ballot that could be, we could be looking at next year. Uh, it's almost an impossible task because you're talking about new additions to, the, to, us, to several fighters that should already be considered uh, on the ballot. You know, next year alone, you're looking at the inclusion now of Vladimir Klitschko, Miguel Cotto, Floyd Mayweather, and uh, um, Andre Ward. All you can't put Floyd in. No, no, Flo no, you can't put Floyd in. What are you talking about? He fought in 2017. No, but that's the point, though. The Boxing Hall of Fame last year changed the eligibility rules. Oh, did they? It's not five years anymore. No, no, now it's three years. Ah, okay, I got you. So all those guys yeah. had their last Sorry. fights in that year. Yeah. Ward, Klitschko, yeah. Yeah. and Cotto. So if you can only vote for five, but only three get elected, unless they get above, I think it's like 80%. How do you vote for Frotch over those four guys? Okay, listen, save all this for your impact show. It's too, it's too complicated. <laughs> um, look, because uh, we haven't got time, because we've got to keep these short, because we know less is more for our guys. Look, let's do three things, right? Okay. Brilliant anniversary that we're just celebrating. Quick answers on these, Dan. Frotch versus Canelo. Frotch loses on a tiny split points decision. At 168, we're talking about? Yeah, 168, yeah. I, I would probably have to pick Canelo also, and I agree with you. It's a close, tough fight and nothing. Great fight. Great fight. Kind of got to go with, uh, with Canelo close, though. 
Imagine some of the exchanges in that fight. Oh, eh? for sure. Oh, Look, because they both had great chins also, and Frosch would be coming exactly. after Canelo is a terrific counterpuncher. It's that's a great fight. Canelo number one in the world right now? I have him number one in the world. Me too. Good. Good. Apart from Tyson Fury is always number one. No, 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 no. <laughs> Canelo's number one. Um, Frotch and Golovkin. Maybe a but Golovkin's gotta come up. Golovkin's gotta come up. Yeah. I mean Fro he fought Froch, at 164. Yeah. Frotch wins in a razor tight one again this time. I, I think I might lean towards Frotch at 168. Uh, again, they both have terrific chins. Um, you know, that's a tough one also. I mean, that, it is. I mean, I, I just don't know. You know, we don't know how Triple G's power translates yet to 168. Um, I, I guess if you force me to pick and that weight division, I might go very slightly towards Frotch. And, and Frotch Calzaghi. Um, I'll give mine very quickly, okay? Okay. Calzaghi might be down early. But he comes back and he wins by two or three rounds against Frotch, who's frustrated like he was against Ward. I agree with you about that. And I know when, uh, when Carl, uh, you know, was looking for a big fight and Joe had just retired, he was calling Joe out. And obviously they just missed each other. You know, Joe could have come back and it, wouldn't have, it would have been probably less than a year layoff at that point or maybe slightly more than a year at the most. Uh, and that would have been a huge fight over in the UK for sure. Uh, I would have loved to see it. But if you make me pick that fantasy fight, I'm going with Calzaghi in a close fight. Now listen, what's for dinner? No idea. You say that, well, by Wednesday, I want your lovely wife to have given you the menu. No, I don't know, no, man. No, no, no. I want to know in the next you show. You tell me you're the one that's cooking all your potatoes and-, and no, I, no, let me tell you what's for my dinner. I'm just about to have it. By the way, you're like four, you're five hours ahead of me, so you should be getting ready for dinner. Yeah, I am. I'm gonna have my second bicycle ride of the day, yeah? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to set you too many tasks now, but as the shows go on, I'm going to set you tasks. Wednesday, I want to know what your lovely wife is making for dinner for you and the boy and herself. Tonight, I am having chili and honey glazed chicken. Oh, nice. Steamed sugar snaps and some lightly crunchy boiled sprouts. Um, Sounds pretty good. I might have to come over. Yeah, with a, with a nice gravy. And, uh, and a little bit of sourdough um, sliced, yeah. Very nice. Well, listen, I'll see you Wednesday, hopefully, yeah? I will see you Wednesday. Um, yeah, and I want, that, I want that menu for Wednesday. I'll, I'll think about it. Listen, it's always a pleasure. Stay well. Thanks, right, uh, thanks for joining well. me. See you later, yeah. D-Love. All right, see you later.